0: Joshua chapter 3, we're looking a little further at a few more principles tonight. Um, And I spoke, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Deems earlier today, we were having a little little pow-wow, a little chit-chat on the phone, encouraging one another, and I was sharing with him how uh, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Uh, These Wednesday night studies that we're doing in Joshua are profitable for you, but they are for me, and so I hope that they are profitable for you, and I hope that you're gleaning some principles. I know it is not expository as we would prefer and we typically do, Uh, but I do think that they're good principles and that you can learn from them and possibly open up some scripture that you've not spent a lot of time in, and so I hope that you enjoy it from that aspect Let's read, um, uh, we'll just read all of chapter three and get a picture of where we are. Um, keep in mind, they are not in the land yet. This is them entering, preparing to enter the land. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Chittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over and it came to pass after 3 days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priest the levites bearing it then you shall remove from your place and go after it yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2000 cubits by measure Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant, and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant, and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When you come to the brink of the water of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby shall you know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above and they shall stand up upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over the Jordan and the priest bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as they that bear the ark were come to the Jordan and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water for the Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city of Adam. And that is beside Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain even the salt sea failed and were cut off And the people passed over against jericho and the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the jordan and all of the israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over jordan so that is uh, the passage that we want to consider anytime we look at a, a scripture passage especially a narrative, which this would fall into that category, um, a historical narrative, Uh, we could see multiple perspectives. Now, we understand what we're saying there, not multiple interpretations, but multiple perspectives, just as the four Gospels would give you four different perspectives. Uh, When we read, uh, there are different perspectives that we could see. Um, I've always been taught, and I don't know, I don't remember where this came from, but I know that it is true and good. But I've always been taught that every message or every lesson, if you will, uh, should seek to reach one of three types of people, and if possible, reach all three with one message. And those three types of people are those who are lost, those who are backslidden and those who are saved, but, but more so serving. The, those who are seeking to walk right with the Lord. I always attempt that. Uh, I don't know that I always accomplish it or anybody else for that matter. But when thinking from that uh, idea of those different perspectives, I think we can see some different perspectives here. As well, if we consider that ark and the crossing of the Jordan. This chapter describes the children of Israel crossing the Jordan into uh, from the wilderness into Canaan. That is, typically speaking, from being lost and wandering into the entering of that promised land. There's a lot of spiritual typology. In that this this event, in general, by the way, is highly symbolic and can be viewed as typical of our death with Christ, uh, the old things passing away and all things becoming new. When we look from that perspective, we would recognize the the wilderness then as a type of our old life, Jordan as a picture of our death in Christ, our death with Christ, our crucifixion in Christ. Canaan often is used as a type of heaven, but Canaan is not really a picture of heaven. And primarily we would know that because there are enemies and wars in Canaan. And they are not those things in heaven. So Canaan is not a picture of heaven, but it is, however a very strong type, a very clear picture of what we would call uh, victorious Christian living or living the victorious Christian life, inheriting the promise of God here uh, in this life. And that's what Canaan is a picture of. And so in that typology, the, the crossing of the Jordan may also be viewed as baptism, departing Uh, from our old walk by descending into the waters as if into the grave and then ascending from the waters as if resurrected from the grave to walk in the newness of life or in the land of promise. That's a picture that we would see in this area. We would also notice that before the children of Israel cross, uh, the Ark of the Covenant passes before them, and into, eventually through, the Jordan. The ark passes the children of Israel, and they are instructed to follow it from a distance. I love the the clarity of the scripture. We would first read that. We would read follow from 2,000 cubits, uh, and we would think, no, you don't want to get close to the ark. There's the holiness of the ark and the danger of getting close to it. And there's some of that there, but I love the 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 clarity of the scriptures where it says because you've not been this way before, mm-hmm. right? And if you're too close up on it, you might fall into something that it's trying to guide you around. And so there there's some some beauty in that. And and when the priests of the that are bearing the ark, as soon as they touch the waters of the Jordan, uh, the waters cease to flow. In fact, the Bible says they. They rise up in a heap from where they're coming, from the city Adam, and they dry up completely from where they're going so that the children of Israel can cross on dry ground. And then once the ark is on the other side, the river returns to its flow. That sounds very similar to the crossing of the Red Sea, right? And for, for this generation of the nation of Israel, this is the crossing of the Red Sea, The crossing of the Red Sea for that previous generation was not only a miraculous work of God, it was meant to show them the hand of God, it was meant to defeat the enemy of God that was following them, but it was also a picture of their baptism, their descending into that, leaving behind Egypt, walking forward into newness of life. They just, from disobedience, never got there. And I would say to you tonight, though it's not part of what I'm teaching, there's many Christians that never get there. There's an awful lot of born-again believers that never enjoy the peace of God or the promises of God in this life. Uh, they're all, uh, they, they all consider it's all future, but God has promises that are good for here and now. And so we would, we would see that, that picture, this crossing, and literally uh, this crossing is for these, this generation of, of the children of Israel, it is their baptism. And just as the Red Sea was here, they, they walk across Jordan on dry ground with the opportunity to live in righteousness and in peace. I think there's four perspectives worth noting, and then there's three I'm going to mention and one we'll settle down with as we look at this lesson. I want you to know that first we can see this passage or this vantage point uh, from the eyes of the seeker the one who is looking for a higher meaning in life if you want to use a colloquial term a person that would typically still be declared as a non-believer someone who's yet to put their faith and trust in christ there's a there's a picture of an evangelistic a salvation sermon right here in this episode. And we could view this passage from that vantage point. When we see the ark, the ark is typical and it is an aid in our understanding of the New Testament. I know that you know this, but I just want to remind you within the ark, there are three items. There is a For memory's sake, uh, the bread, the book, and the bud is how I was taught it for memory's sake. But there's a golden omer of the manna that was gathered daily to remind them that that God provided for them the bread they needed to live. There is uh, the tablets of Moses, which is emblematic of the word of God and the truth of God. And then there is Aaron's rod that budded, and Aaron's rod that budded was used in that particular instance to declare the sovereign hand of God in the choosing of Aaron to lead the Aaronic priesthood, but it was a picture of the resurrection life because that rod had been cut and dead for a long time, and when laid there the way it was supposed to be laid there, it bloomed. Uh, the almond bloomed, and so uh, we would we would get a picture of these three things: the bread, the book, and the bud, or the manna, the tablets, and the rod. We would also notice the covering, which is on the top of the ark, that being the mercy seat, that made of beaten gold, uh, that uh, held in place with a crown of gold work, and then lastly we would consider the overall construction that of acacia wood a a tree that blooms rarely is not beautiful to look at but endures that wood covered in pure gold and that is a picture of course of Of God, the gold is. And so in that typology, we would see Jesus as the bread of life and Jesus as the word of God and Jesus as the resurrection and Jesus as the blood sacrifice that would be applied to the mercy seat. And we would see Jesus in his incarnation in that hypostatic union of God, the the God man, the one mediator, uh, fully God and fully man. And we would see Jesus crowned as the king of kings And the Lord of Lords. And so when the seeker sees the Ark of the Covenant and sees it uh, as it is, it screams that Jesus is the bread of life, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that Jesus is the resurrection, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we would would look at this passage from from that perspective of the seeker and say, God's movement is right there. God's salvation is right there in the transport of this nation across the Jordan. In that picture, we would know that the children of Israel were at the end of their old life. There would be no more wandering in the wilderness. No more aimlessness they were there was an opportunity before them to possess all that God had promised just as that opportunity stands before you even today as a believer we would we would notice that as they are facing uh, death uh, that that death for them uh, is represented in those waters that stood up in a heap all the way back to Adam canceling that issue and and drying up what was ahead we would notice that uh, the believer does not face death alone that the lord jesus christ has conquered death hell and the grave by satisfying the demands of the law and of a righteous god on the cross at calvary and you too can be freed from bondage and that of your old life, and enjoy the freedom of a new life in Christ, only follow Jesus the way they followed that ark. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? We might also see this this passage or this perspective uh, from the eyes of the saint. The one who is uh, born again, he or she having a clear understanding of their salvation and knowing that they will enjoy heaven someday but also being informed that they may or may not be enjoying the blessings of god now but they can one prime example of that would be the lord shares with us that story of the prodigal in the new testament and that boy from the day that he left and went about his riotous living from that moment until the moment he came back, he was many things, but one thing that he was always was a son. And that father continually looked for and waited for him to return. But we, we would see that picture of the prodigal, always a son, just out of fellowship with the father. And when he comes to the end of himself, and when he could not find satisfaction in the world, he would return to the father who would willingly Accept him back again. That's a picture of the backslider, the carnal Christian, the runaway child of God. And, and we might see this through those eyes. Notice again in verses 3 through 10, we see the ark, which is Christ. We're told, they were told to look for it. And when you see it, follow it. We should also look for Christ. And when we see him, Follow him. We're we're told in the passage they are to keep their distance because they've not been this way before. And we want to keep a right perspective so that we can see clearly that place that God is leading us. We're told that he will fight our battles for us. This ark was going before them to prepare the way. How often we get ahead of Christ and how often we lose sight of Christ and how often we fight needless battles, but we should always just look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The Lord would say on many occasions in the Old Testament, you turn unto me and I will turn unto you. Thirdly, we might would see this from the vantage point of a servant, a, uh, a soldier of glory, one who is working and waiting on the Lord. And to that passage, or to that person, this passage offers, I think, two lessons and two lasting promises. The lessons would be to pursue Jesus and to practice separation. He said, on the morrow, sanctify yourselves. Yeah. I think the promises would be that when we do that, he will magnify and multiply and that he will make victorious. We could see that in this passage and be encouraged and be strengthened. And from that perspective, we would say, just, just keep on, you know, don't quit, run your race, run with endurance, finish the course. God's going before you. God's preparing this path. And then finally, the one I want to spend just a moment or two on is the idea of the student of God's Word. If we look at this uh, from the vantage point of a student of God's Word, this student of God's Word would be one who patterns their lives based upon the gleanings from the Word of God, the one who is always looking for ways in which best to apply the truths contained in the Bible. And when we as students of the word begin to look at these things, these qualities, these characteristics, these traits in Joshua, we must notice how here uh, he develops these, the, he develops dedication in these people. He, And that's really what we're talking about tonight, the, the ability to dedicate or to amplify, develop or amplify dedication in the followers of Christ and we would recognize that Joshua has done that. And and we would understand that in any successful venture, if we will be surrounding ourselves with other persons that are dedicated to causes like as we are, the question is, how? How do you develop these dedicated partners in today's live-for-the-moment generation? And I believe we see these things. First, I want you to notice that Joshua models his ideology. He models his ideology. We think about this word model or ideology and we would say, well, what is what, what do you mean by ideology? Because sometimes that's a dirty word. But in this case, we would consider ideology as a meaningful belief system. There's something that matters to Joshua. It is... This relationship with the Lord. It is following the Lord. It is fulfilling the call of God. It is, it is conquering this, this land of Canaan. It is completing this task that God has put in front of him. And everything that Joshua does models that ideology. And it, it includes his consideration of who God is or what God has promised or what his responsibility unto God is, and what his responsibilities unto Israel are, and what theirs are unto him, and his ideology is a complete version of his belief system. And Joshua's living this in front of these people that are watching him, and they are learning from that. We might would summarize Joshua's ideology more specifically, more uh, sufficiently that Joshua believed that Israel was ordained to conquer and inhabit the land of Canaan by faithfully following their God. He believed that the land would be delivered into their hands if they were obedient and faithful and set apart. Every time you hear Joshua speak, he speaks to that end. It is, uh, it's not any different uh, today. Were it, if it were with our children and we were to... Seek to, uh, to impress uh, upon, not, I'm not talking about a wow, but impress upon our children a right ideology, a right living standard. We would have to be faithful to the tenets that we speak of, right? If it's, if it's all words and no action, they're not going to pay attention to it, right? They're going to see what you modeled and it's no different in, in an environment such as we are in now. If 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 the the um, presentation from the pulpit was constantly one of uh, self-assurance and self-growth and self-worth and and that type of thing, uh, we would before long be a congregation of selfish people, right? I hope everybody comprehends that. And, and when the when the presentation from the pulpit is a continual challenge to answer to the call of God and to live according to, the, to the, the, the characteristics that God has described, then we are constantly outside of ourselves trying to improve. When the challenge is that God has given us West Jackson County, and I, by the way, I believe that. That's not just some uh, political punditry that I come up with. I believe God has gifted us West Jackson County. And so when if that's the continual presence or the continual presentation, most likely we're going to be a, concentrated, a congregation of people who are reaching out into the community, right? Come in. And so that's what we see with Joshua. He has modeled this ideology. His every action, his every word, his, his every deed would portray these beliefs. He would model this belief. By the way, if you just read the rest of the book, he, he never sways from that belief. In his dying statement to the nation of Israel, he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was so ingrained in who he was that he models that ideology consistently. And if we're going to develop dedication in followers, and everybody's got followers, you may not believe it, but somebody's watching. And if we're going to develop dedication, then we've got to model the beliefs which we are asking of them. Next, I want you to think about his method of implementation. Look at, how did he put these things into action? Look at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3, and it came to pass after three days, the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, then you remove from your place and go after it. He says to him again in verse 6, Joshua spake unto the priest saying, take up the ark of the covenant, pass over before the people. And they took up the ark and the covenant and went before the people. There's instruction. Do you see that? There's instruction. Joshua instructed the the children through through his officers. He instructed them, the ark's going to be moving. And when you see it moving, you go follow it. And then he said to the priest, Hey, start moving. There was instruction. There's there's also direction. Again, look at verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way which you must go, for you have not passed this way heretofore. And so there's direction. And there's a leader. He's instructing. He's directing. Look at verse 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders unto you. And, and again in chapter uh, 3, verses 11 through 13, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord shall pass over. Now therefore take 12 men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every man and tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet. You see all of that? It's preparation. He's preparing them for what's going to happen. He's instructed, he's directed, he's prepared. And then in verse 9, it says that Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of God. Hear the words of the Lord your God. He's educating them. And so there's this this model that he is given of of, of who he is and what he believes and how he's going to act. And he's portrayed that model. But here there's an implementation, a method of implementation. And it it includes instruction, and direction, and preparation, and education. So what we understand is there's intentionality in it. Not just a, a flippancy of follow if you can or keep up if you can or you do you, whatever makes you feel good. It's not that. There's an intentionality about it. And, and what we notice is that his implementation was not empty inspiration or empty motivation, but rather we see it clearly instruction and education and preparation and direction. He asked them to prepare by cleansing themselves before crossing. He asked them to set aside 12 men, one from each tribe. He uses the the greatest primer in all of history to educate his followers, the Word of God. Those inspired words of God would add validity to all the requests that Joshua would make. They would add rhyme and reason and remove riddle and misunderstanding. There's a a method there of intentionality and implementation. We also see this picture of a, a manifestation of investment. A natural, result, following, a natural result of following God or of following the plan set forth by God is that there will be a manifestation of our efforts. You won't find anybody that is dedicated and devoted and obedient to the Lord who is enduring a wilderness experience. They, the two don't go together. There, there is, if, if this other thing is happening, if there is obedience that's happening, if there is a following of the plan that is happening, there may be trial and tribulation, but there will also be a manifestation, a manifestation of what's happening, of the investment being made, a fruition first, a fruition of faith. Verses 14 through 17, uh, those people would remove from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priest or carry the ark. And as soon as they touch the water, the waters roll back. There's a manifestation there. That is the fruition of their faith, seeing that. And what it does to them is it adds to their expectation of the future. Joshua would say to them, by these things, in verse 10, you'll know that the living God is among you and that he will, will without fail drive out from before you all of these people. And so when they step into the water and the water rolls back, there is the, the, a fruition of their faith and there is an expectation of the future because Joshua said, you watch what the Lord does. It speaks to what he's going to do in the future. And when you and I are obedient to the Lord. There are manifestations that give us encouragement. There are truths, fruit that comes, that give us encouragement. And then lastly, I would call your attention to the implications of managing this influence. In verse 7, the Lord says to Joshua today, I'm going to begin to magnify you in the eyes of the people. I'm going to to show them that, that you, like Moses, are my man. That The way I was with Moses, and you could just add all the detail to that you want. The way Moses brought about those miracles in front of Pharaoh. The way Moses ruined Egypt by pulling the children out the way Pharaoh's armies would uh, die in the Red Sea, the way Moses spoke over the Red Sea to make it depart, the way Moses would speak to the rock for water, the way Moses would lay a limb in the water to purify it and make it the bitter waters of Mara sweet, all of those things that Moses would do, the way Moses would go to the mountaintop and receive directly from God the commandments, all of that picture of as I was with Moses is very powerful. And God says to Joshua, today I'm going to begin to make you appear powerful like that in the eyes of the people. They're going to know. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 4 that on that day the Lord magnified Joshua in all the side of Israel, they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And what we understand is that Joshua was granted a great influence in these people's lives. And you and I are not Joshua. And uh, you're likely not called to be a Joshua. Joshua, indeed, is not a picture of the believer, he's a picture of the Savior. And we would comprehend that. But do you know what you and I have in common with Joshua? Is that every one of us have influence of some kind in somebody's life. And how do we manage that influence? Is it without value to us? It's not important. I'm not going to express care and concern. I'm not going to express... Compassion. I'm not going to seek to, to lead that person. I know they look at me. I know they have respect. I know these things, but it really is not very valuable to me. Or am I going to manipulate? Am I going to manipulate that influence and, and utilize it for my own good? Or am I going to manage that influence? Manage the influence that God gives us. That means that we manage it here in our heart and then we manage it as we dispense it. In our hearts, we don't allow uh, it to become a thing of self and and self-aggrandizement, self-importance, self-esteem, those things. But at the same time, we recognize there's influence there. That is a responsibility that God has given me and an opportunity that God has given me. And I'm going to manage that influence. Well, what are some things that we would say if we're going to manage that we, we have to protect against? We don't want to fall prey to Satan or the world system. So we do that by submitting unto God. We do that by showing consideration for uh, that which Christ has already accomplished. We would, as Paul would say, not desire vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. The world would say uh, only the strong survive, but God would say the meek inherit the earth. And we would have a picture there. How am I going to betray myself? The world would say do unto others as they before they do unto you. And the lord would say and the word would say love your neighbor as yourself the world would answer that and say well who is my neighbor and christ would say everyone is your neighbor right the world teaches to visualize what you want and then go after it get it get it at all cost the old country saying used to be get all you can and can't all you get and what is it sit on the lid right but the word the bible says delight yourself in the things of god and and he'll give you the desires of your heart so we've all got some influence we have to manage that influence we've stated it all along and i'm closing everyone is following someone and the great ones are following god And those who follow God have the greatest potential to lead well. But where priorities are concerned, people come before. People come first. They're they're before prophets and pride and all of those other things. They're first. How am I developing those people that are around me? How am I influencing those people around me? How am I growing those people around me? How am I leading Those people around me, am I modeling the right ideology in front of those people? It's a responsibility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this night. Thank you, Lord, for your truths. Father, I pray you'd just help us as we seek to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. Help us, Lord, as we seek to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Help us, Father, as we seek to exercise the gifts that God has given. Help us, Lord, to manage correctly the influence we have in the lives of other people. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.